It is 3 p.m. right here on KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM, which means it's time for my show, Arabology, on this Thursday, January 31st. It has been a week since the second anniversary of the Egyptian Revolution, and last week's show was, I'm glad to say, uh, quite popular. I've received quite a bit of uh, email correspondence and otherwise uh, telling me how much they enjoyed the show with my guest last week, who was Egyptian director Khaled Sayed. So in keeping uh, with the same theme, this week I will continue to uh, focus on uh, the current state of the Egyptian revolution one week after its second anniversary. We'll be doing that through music that fueled the Arab Spring, as well through, uh, as through an exclusive interview with a young lady who will leave you mesmerized. Her name is Samar Mustafa Ahmad, and she is the Fulbright Scholar from Egypt to Stanford. She was there during the uh, uprising and she has uh, quite a bit of experience and views to share with us right here on the Arabology Show, coming to you from KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. Hey, chill, my salad. Hey, 
لسه بقرا في الحاجات اصلاحات وزيد كمان كشف اثر الموميا right here on the Arabology show from KZSU Stanford 90.0 FM. I know everybody out there is very excited to speak with my very special guest, uh, Egyptian Fulbright scholar Samar Ahmed. She is in the house and we will be speaking uh, with her right after this. The Second Harvest Food Bank of Santa Clara and San Mateo counties provide food for more than 750 agencies and distribution sites, serving every zip code between Gilroy and South San Francisco. Your help is needed to keep these pantry shelves filled. To donate or to become a volunteer, please visit www.secondharvest.org. That's www.secondharvest.org. Since 1982, the San Francisco AIDS Foundation has been providing services to people living with HIV and AIDS and helping to fight the epidemic through education, awareness, and advocacy. If you would like to become involved or would like to help support their efforts, go to www.sfaf.org. That's www.sfaf.org. Save the Bay is a nonprofit organization working to protect and restore San Francisco Bay and its watershed from the threats of pollution and urban sprawl. Save the Bay offers canoe trips, hands-on watershed restoration projects, and opportunities in citizen action to help protect the bay. You can find out more by visiting www.savesfbay.org. That's www.savesfbay.org. <laughs> 
3.05 p.m. right here on KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. This is DJ Ramsey. The show is Arabology. And as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show, last week's show dedicated to the Egyptian Revolution uh, got me quite a bit of, uh, well, positive responses or at least interesting responses. And so I thought we would carry on with the theme today. And our very special guest is none other than uh, Egyptian Fulbright scholar Samar Mustafa Ahmed, who is in the studio. Samar, assalamu alaikum. How nice to hear such beautiful Arabic right here on KZSU. Samar, you are a Fulbright scholar here at Stanford, and uh, that would be for the year 2012-2013. Yeah, correct. And how long have you been at Stanford now? Mm, uh, Since August, so this makes it like... uh, Five months. Five months. Okay, so you pro- you're you're an old pro at this by now. <laughs> you're no longer new. Your what's your impression of Stanford? Too big, too beautiful, uh, homey for everybody, and so welcoming and cozy and everything. Wow, wow. Was it what you expected when you were in Egypt and you knew you were coming here? Did it? Uh, is this what you pictured or? Was it different? Um, actually, more than what I pictured back there in Egypt. The pictures back there are very clean, beautiful, and everything. But you feel like, wow, this is a very big place. But when I came here, I found all the good people to fill it up for me with love and tenderness and everything. Wow, wow. And that's after five months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somewhat, I have to say that uh, part of your function here is that you're also a Fulbright language teaching assistant, and you're assisting with the Arabic classes here at Stanford. And so my first question to you is just going to be, uh, because as you know, I teach Arabic here. Uh, what's your impression of our students who are learning Arabic here at Stanford? Not the easiest language for them to tackle. They're very excited to know a different set of uh, letters. Actually, they they all know the Latin letters as they are American English speakers and everything, but they're very excited to know about the letters and how to write from right to left. This is really different for them and really exciting. And they're very excited to know about the culture mainly. The, mm-hmm. All the professors are very good in delivering this message to them that language doesn't come alone. This is spoken by someone and... This is a way of communication in a certain culture, so they're really excited to know everything about this culture. Well, and I must say that when we're speaking about languages, your English-speaking skills are amazing, Samar. <laughs> you sound exactly... Is it, is it something you picked up in the last five months, or did you come this way? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always learning from you, Dr. Salty. Oh, especially yes. my American slang, which tends to be very hip. You have the loveliest voice in English, so... (laughs) (laughs) Salman Mustafa Ahmed, our Egyptian Fulbright scholar here at Stanford, is going to be with me today here on the Arabology Show. And one of the reasons, Salman, that I'm very happy that you agreed to come today is because you were actually there when the Egyptian uprising, revolution, uh, whatever we want to call it, began. Uh, You were actually in Cairo, Salman? Yeah, I I live in Cairo. Actually, on the 25th of January, I was in front of the main court back there in Cairo, uh, downtown. That was the place uh, from which so many uh, marches started. So I was in one of the main marches that started from there, and I saw everything since 
the first hour, the first second, actually. I was following all the news on the Facebook, which was a very big thing at that time. And it's still very big in Egypt. It was a, a way of communication between people who didn't know each other. Wow. So we used that, pages on the Facebook and groups and everything to communicate in a way or another. So we did and each one who was on the streets didn't know that the other people would be there so everyone was going alone but we wow. met there we found that thousands and thousands of people were on the streets at the same time wow so we're talking about january 25th 2011 yeah and uh, that's really now has become like the date that uh, commemorates the beginning of the uh, movement or uh, or the the completion of the of the first step of the revolution yeah that is correct the people were all there at that time it's actually the 25th of january has a special um thing it, it is the date on the the feast of the shorta of the police back there in egypt so the people chose that day specifically to deliver a a pure message to the police forces that we're not afraid anymore on your day we're on the streets we are asking for our rights we we're marching all together like millions of people at the same time wow. and it was really something wow they got the message because by january 25th obviously mubarak had fallen uh yeah he fall 18 year 18 days afterwards yeah so the so the, the anniversary is 18 days after the fall of the mubarak regime and uh, it was a day of celebration was it a day of joyous celebration or was it a uh, sort of a, a day of angry demonstrations i mean what was the feeling being one of those millions you're talking about of actually being there okay there is something that i said to one of my friends do you know when you dream of something and the something becomes really big and it produces so many other dreams all together and I come to you and fulfill all these dreams at once at the same second. What is your feeling going to be? It sounds amazing. That uh, was my answer. Really? Really? <laughs> yeah. That's how you felt when you were in the streets uh, with these millions yeah. of people. Um, you felt that way. You felt as if you were in a dream that you, that came true. That or? came true, especially with my friends who got injured. Um, thank God, no, no, none of my friends died on the revolution. Thank but God. some of my friends got injured. They lost eyes or legs or something. Oh, so um, they know that this is the price being paid for for such a thing so we were waiting for the thing we prayed in advance we had credit in this country so we wanted this dream because we paid so much for it wow but it does take courage doesn't it because uh, i mean i know you're too modest to probably acknowledge that but you took to the streets not knowing where where this was going to lead i mean this could you could have had a uh, a bad uh, reaction or uh, uh, move on the part of the Egyptian military, perhaps? Was there any kind of uh, fear or anticipation that accompanied this uh, feeling of jubilation that you describe? We are afraid. We didn't know the results. We yeah. were afraid at the beginning. But whenever you reach the streets, whenever you touch the ground with so, so many other people, you feel surrounded, you feel secure more than your mother's womb. Wow. Sort of. Because you see the spirit of all the people. It's like we're, we're moving 
at once as a whole. We're not moving individually. Some of us get killed, of course, but this doesn't mean that we don't feel secure with having one another. Wow. That was something. It wasn't a courage, a courageous thing from my on my behalf. I was one of millions. I don't mm. claim to have certain type of courage, but we as a nation showed one another that we can depend on one another that we right. have backup system the egyptian yeah. nation and so you were you were surrounded by people you knew as well as strangers at, at this point i mean you weren't by yourself was it family was it friends who uh, accompanied you Mainly friends and my younger brother. Right. And we're talking about people then of your generation, like, uh, you know, 20s was probably in their 20s was the average age. You can say that we started from the 13 years old boys and girls wow. till the 70 years old people. 70? You could see these people on the streets. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Because, you know, we kind of always think of the Egyptian uprising as being fueled by young people, you know, in their 20s and 30s. But you're saying you saw a whole array of ages and... And, and it was men and women together in the streets uh, yeah. uh, uh, calling for uh, the same cause. Uh, in 18 days, no harassment, no terrorism, no stealing, nothing bad wow. happened to the people and there was no police. Wow. And you were there to see this. Yes. Wow. Nobody got stolen. When, when you talk over the phone, when you speak over your phone and you just tilt a little bit with your head, you see a doctor by your side yeah. and you were at the, in the middle of one million people. Everybody spreads away and gives a path to a doctor who comes to you and wow. you're just fine. Wow. Wow. Tahrir that Square sounds amazing. <laughs> Tahrir Square, indeed. I don't know. Should yeah. I call it the, the, the uh, Egyptian Woodstock? I probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> but, uh, but it seems like this feeling of, of uh, solidarity that gave you the strength and the, uh, and, and, uh, the determination to continue uh, with your assertion that you want to change the system. Yeah, finally, it was good enough to do that. It was We had something that was good enough to do that. And we had a definite dream and goal to do that. So this thing generated us with all that. Generated, it gave us energy. It gave us power. It gave us everything that we needed. And we had one another all the time. Wow. That was the thing that we all depended on. And what were you calling for, Samad Ahmad? يسقط فليسقط let me translate that depart depart the people want to overthrow the system Mubarak uh, system and you were there so it's going Erhal Erhal yeah wow and some people were actually very comic I call it the first electronic comic revolution in the world <laughs> indeed indeed there was much humor yeah uh, in, in the people, signs that mm -hmm. people were holding and in the anthems they were uh, yeah. singing what, can you give us one uh, do you, like what, what was one, one sign uh, that, that kind of stood out for you that could be comic as well as uh, have Some a political message Some people didn't shave or even cut their hair and they called Irhal Ba'ash and Ahla Oh, okay, and so <laughs> the part so I can finally shave <laughs> Yeah, they did that. Uh, I remember seeing a picture of like a, 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 a baby in the womb or a fetus in the womb. Mm -hmm. And uh, and even the fetus had like the caption like going, Erhal, you know, leave. <laughs> so even the, the, the baby, yeah. who, you know, wasn't born or uh, was saying that. Uh, Samar Ahmad, uh, you, you actually made it through uh, that demonstration and, 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 and came through, thank God, 
unharmed mm-hmm. physically. But yeah. you mentioned that some of your friends actually did suffer yeah. um, uh, mental or uh, physical uh, uh, bruises. Mental bruises were the for the people who lived after others died. Oh, gosh. And uh, physical bruises were things that went away as soon as we saw his departure. Wow. Wow. Um, one of my friends got a bullet in his leg, so wow. we extracted that leg. But when the the things went bad, once more, he felt that his leg is hurting, although there was nothing wrong with it. Wow. It was, I think, it was pure psychic. But yeah, it's it like could be psychological, yeah. obviously, the aftermath of that. But um, uh, some other, uh, you made it unscathed. You witnessed this historical moment, and when we come back, I'd like to speak to you a little bit about, uh, you know, your impression of how the revolution continued, and eventually where we are today. Because I'm very interested to hear your thoughts about the current state. Egypt has been in the news uh, quite a bit this last week due to the second anniversary of the Egyptian Revolution, meaning January 25th, 2013 at this point. Mm-hmm. And I'm very interested in your take on that. Samar Mustafa Ahmed, it is a joy to have you in the studio. You'll be able to hang with me for a little while, right, Samar? Sure. In- inshallah. inshallah. Okay, in the meantime, we'll listen to more of the music that fueled the Egyptian Revolution and Uprising, as well as uh, the Arab Spring in general. And uh, I'll be back after this uh, musical break to uh, talk to my amazing guest today, Samar Mustafa Ahmed in the studio. Shukran ya Samar. Go! 
الفلوس أسحق أزوهك منهم خايفين يا مصر أصبحنا أحيا وميتين مساكين فاللي حيقعد في بيته يبقى مش مفهوم واللي حينزل إلهي حارس وصاين يا مصر هانت وبانت كلها كم يوم نهارنا نادي ونهار الندل مش باين نهارنا نادي وبقدينا على فكرة الصبح عنده فضول رح نعمل بكرة نهارنا نادي وبهدينا على فكرة الصبح عنده فضول رح نعمل ايه بكرة ايده على الباب وخايف يلبس الاكرة ايده على الباب وخايف يلبس الاكرة ادخل يا استاذ براحتك والبلد حرة احنا زهقنا نشوف الصبح من برة ادخل يا استاذ براحتك والبلد حرة احنا زهقنا نشوف الصبح من برة ادخل وخرج بقايا العتمة بالمرة ادخل وخرج ما بالمرة الناس دي حرة وجنود الأمن مضطرة يا صبح طلعت رحنا لجل تيجي يا خي طالعين نجيبها أهو في كل حارة وحي يا صبح طلعت رحنا لجل تيجي يا خي طالعين نجيبها أهو في كل حارة وحي حتى ولو ضربونا بالرصاص الحي حتى ولو ضربونا بالرصاص الحي شوف المداين كده مفروشة خلق وضي دايما مفاجأة ودايما وقتها معلوم الحكم لينا وليك الحق يا مداين يا مصر هانت وبانت كلها كم يوم نهارنا نادي ونهار الندل مش باين شباب فاكرين يا صف عسكر بدال الدرع يشيلوا اتنين خمسة وعشرين يا ناير يا شباب فاكرين كان في انجليز ووزير الداخلية تخين كان عنده برضه عساكر زيكم جامدين سابهم يموتوا على ولا لمسة أساميكم أساميهم سابهم يموتوا على ولا لمسة ألفيهم 
كانوا شبهكم أساميكم أساميهم يا عسكر البهوات اللي بتحميهم ممكن يردوا عليك لما تناديهم يا عسكري أنا أصلي بس بستغرب لو لقيتاكل وتشرب قوم يا عم اضرب يا عسكري أنا أصلي بس بستغرب لو لقيتاكل وتشرب قوم يا عم اضرب اضرب عشان الوزير من ضربتك اضرب لكن هتشتغلي لما الوزير يهرب اما الجديد القوي القادر ابو القادر برمي السلامه ونشا على مصر بالاخر اما الشديد القوي القادر ابو القادر برمي السلامه ونشا على مصر بالاخر لو شافته معدده تكتب ادب ساخر ثابت يقول للهرم يا كابتن التاخر ولم يزل معتقد ان الهرم حيقوم ادي الحجر والبشر قايمين يا سيدي الام والدين حيترد اللي عشت متضايق يا مصر هانت وبارد كلها كم يوم نهارنا نادي ونهار الندل مش باين ولا وجع بطني تعالج بزيت خروع ده حكم أسرة ولا خوف ولا خفرع ولا وجع بطني تعالج بزيت خروع هعمل مسوجر بعيد عنك ولا يطلع جربنا في كل شيء ما لقينا شيء ينفع هعمل مسوجر بعيد عنك ولا يطلع جربنا في كل شيء ما لقينا شيء ينفع ما طلعش بالأدوية جربنا ألف طبيب ولا بعد طارد شيوخ ليهم بلح وزبيب ما طلعش بالأدوية جربنا ألف طبيب ولا بعد طارد شيوخ ليهم بلح وزبيب ولا بجحف المغول وضرب بالأبائيب شرفك يا فخمتك بالذي كاين قلنا 
ومنا للطيب ومنا للقدر معلوم وشرفك يا فخمتك بالذي كاين يا مصر بانت وبانت كلها كم يوم ظهرنا نادي ونهار الندل مش باين That was a track called Ya Masri Hanit We Banit by a guy named uh, Mustafa Saeed. And uh, that's, uh, that's a track from a new album from the Rough Guide to the Arabic Revolution, which includes music that fueled the Arab Spring, not only from Egypt, uh, but also from uh, all around uh, the Arab world. My guest today in the studio is none other than Samar Mustafa Ahmad, Fulbright scholar from Egypt to Stanford. She's been here for a few months uh, and uh, apparently she's been uh, she's enjoyed the experience so far correct Samar? Yeah I did so much and uh, so we, you actually uh, you know were kind enough to come in today to share some of your uh, experiences your eyewitness accounts of uh, being at the Harir Square at that historical moment that we in the West and here in the States uh, saw only through television uh, Samar you were telling us about the, the moment that I, I, I love the way you described it as being uh, a moment of utter bliss and jubilation uh, accompanied with a sense of fear that seems to have dissipated because of the fact that you were surrounded by a feeling of solidarity uh, it, it, did that feeling last long Samar or did you uh, start growing disillusioned with the uprising after that uh, moment that marked January 25th, 2011, which is uh, the, uh, the, the day of the uh, commemoration of the Egyptian uh, uprising? Mm, nobody felt it like an illusion. It was there. It was real more than reality, actually. But the thing is that when it was over, when the revolution was ended by the departure of the former president Hosni Mubarak mm-hmm. it wasn't um, like really ended on the on the ground it was ended in our heads it was ended for us because we went back home but it wasn't really it didn't really ca- come to an end mm-hmm. because <coughs> first of all we changed Hosni Mubarak we, we got him we, we got him to departure but we didn't change the whole system the whole regime was still there mm-hmm. everything he left was there everything he made was still there but the thing with that the the important thing was was with that was that he left everything he st- he everything he did was still there and even the s- the in, uh, ministry of inferior the system was still doing what they used to so So uh, do you would you agree with me if I said that maybe the Egyptian revolution is not ended yet? I don't think so. No, you think it's pretty much ended because I really love the fact that you're sharing your point, uh, your point of view with me. Like last week, um, you know, I had uh, Director Khalid Sayyid on Arabology and he was uh, filming mm-hmm. uh, at Tahrir Square. And one of the things he mentioned uh, was that he believes that, you know, the Egyptian revolution itself can't just you know start and finish within one year or two years that it's an ongoing process and that in his mind it's still going on right now uh so you you kind of feel like the goal has been achieved and that a new chapter has begun no goals have been achieved 
wow. the only goal that has been achieved that we took the former president that we took the head of uh, the heads of every ministry that we took them off and we took over these ministries in a way or another but everything else wasn't so wasn't achieved no so so then is the revolution still going on it is oh okay so uh, th the reason i'm saying that somewhere is because i think i may have misunderstood you when you said the revolution has ended uh i don't think you meant like uh the actual revolution that continues but mm -hmm. maybe that part of the revolution the overthrowing of the of the system um the revolution has ended that i said means that the whole movement of the society in one step forward and one step backward has ended mm. at a time. The 18 days marked that end. The 18 days when they were when they came to an end marked that end. Right between the fall of Mubarak and the d the, yes. the actual day of January 25th, 2011, mm -hmm. marked that end in a way. But the actual revolution is still there, and if it's not still there in the hearts and the minds and the souls of Egyptians, so I don't think this is not this is not going to work. Right, it and this is so. This is not the end of the road yet. No, this is not the end of the road. So I have to ask you, Samad. Um, you know, with the anniversary, you've been watching a little bit on TV that people gathered again in Tahrir Square, mm -hmm. this time to protest Morsi. Uh, After two years of the um, uh, of the revolution, they didn't see change on the ground. Mm -hmm. They didn't see democracy. the The main um, claims for the revolution was "aish which means bread, freedom, bread. It, it's it's a very it's a very important thing in the Egyptian diet, as you must know. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> bread, freedom, and social um, equality. Wow. Wow. So, so. Shall we say it again in Arabic? Wow. I love that. And it rhymes so beautifully in Arabic. And so you feel that those goals of, uh, of bread, freedom, mm -hmm. and social equality have not yet been achieved in Egypt today. Not even one fraction, so. Wow. So uh, we're still waiting, and they waited for two years. So they waited for seven months since President Morsi came to the presidency, and um, quite nothing has been achieved. Yeah. So how do you feel now? I mean, are you, are you optimistic, or are you getting a little pessimistic when you look at what's going on? When a revolutionary soul gets pessimistic, I can expect the, the sky is falling. Wow. I'm never pessimistic. Wow. <laughs> never pessimistic. Wow. <laughs> so, boy, do you remain optimistic. And, and I think in many ways, I mean, somewhat without trying to put a label on you, mm -hmm. but in many ways you represent the new generation, a generation that grew up using computers and technology, a generation that has had or had had enough of, uh, you know, a regime that had gone on for 30 years plus and uh, and and sort of the uh, this this self i don't know confidence that you can change something i mean it seemed impossible that people could actually overthrow the system in egypt and it happened thanks to y your kind of uh, thinking and attitude uh but are there moments where maybe you feel that it's too much, that uh, the goal is too far to reach? Um, 
everybody has these moments. Mm-hmm. It's it's normal in the human soul, not the Egyptian or the American or the f- Chinese or the French soul. It's normal in any soul that you get ups and downs. Ups moments are when you produce the most and you produce beautiful things. Downs moments are when you feel pessimistic. But for me, these downs moments, I try to minimize them as much as I can. Mm-hmm. I think most of my generation does. But there is always the period of before electricity and after electricity, before the <laughs> maximum torture and after maximum torture. People were tortured in Egypt uh, with electricity at some places. Oh so gosh. Yeah. So um, when they had this, they generated, uh, they got a um, slogan. There is, before electricity, before, elec- be- before electricity, we were always afraid to get electrocuted. Mm-hmm. But after electricity, we experienced that it didn't kill us; it made us stronger. So wow. we experienced all the bad things. Already. I mean, I, I know this is going to sound like a silly question on my part, but are we speaking about like the actual electrocution of people, or are we speaking about uh, like figuratively? Actual electrocution of people. Wow. So this was part of what the Egyptian people feared before the uprising? Yeah. Wow. The threat Mm -hmm. of being electrocuted by the government. Yeah, by the police forces mainly. Amnad Dawla, which is the uh, general security, I think. And and, I mean, was your family afraid of that? Sure. Really? Everybody was. I just, I love the way you, you, you say it so... You know, it's not casual. It's just uh, with such an air of uh, of dignity and, 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 and an amazing grace when you speak about torture. I mean, we're talking about torturing Egyptian citizens by their own government. They were actually tortured by the government at some point, And they were afraid. Everybody was afraid to get caught at one day. So this is something real that we're talking about. It was not only a reality. It was a lifestyle. Wow. Just... Do nothing. Stay idle. When you stay idle, nothing is going to happen to you. Yeah. yeah. But people didn't stay idle. Didn't you can stay idle till till a moment. After this moment, of course, you're going to riot. Mm. You're going to explode. Wow. Too much pressure on the people would generate a very bad thing. Wow. And so, you know, speaking of rioting, did you uh, kind of uh, follow the events of uh, last week, which would be January 25th, 2013, the second anniversary to the Egyptian Revolution? Did you watch maybe through the television or the Internet uh, the protests that were going on? And uh, do you feel that they were as peaceful as the ones you participated in? Thanks to the internet, I'm live 24 hours. Wow. I'm always there. I follow everything. Um, the riots this year were slightly different uh, uh, in the sense of we are not rioting. We're not marching to only dismiss the regime and the ruler. We are rioting to get rid of everything that bounders us that keeps us down uh the prices are really high the unemployment rates are becoming very high the education is coming down too many accidents and oh right like the train yeah trains not a train they're like four or five the houses are falling boats are sinking so many things are happening at the same time so and everybody feels that the government is not efficient enough to handle this. Wow. They're feeling they are having that feeling and this is not working for them anymore. P- 
people were afraid till a certain point. They're not afraid anymore. They gave you a chance. You didn't take it, so you deserve what is happening. Yeah. The thing is that so many p criminals are using this because people are going um, without um, very much organization. Mm. So unlike unlike the actual unlike uh, the actual revolution two years ago, the actual revolution, the organization came out of the blue. Wow. It wasn't. Um, planned for but it, the organization came just like that yeah, it happened it, it happened. happened this year when we s saw the riots against uh, you know the current state uh, of things in egypt uh it seemed that it was a little more less organized maybe and was it more violent am i right in assuming that yeah it was more violent and the people who died so many times in the um, uh, football you know that the football games the, like the soccer here in the states mm. the soccer is the most popular sport back there in Egypt. So in Egypt, yeah. It's like football here in America, Ameri what I call yeah. American <laughs> football. Uh, but uh, yes, so the soccer from the Middle East, these events are really, you know, there yeah. are there have many loyal fans who attend. And yes, so your it point... Shapes the, it shapes the life of s some level of people like the ultras. The ultras are the main uh, cheerleaders of these of the football teams uh -huh. so the ultras are a very wide range of students school students university students they are from 13 14 years old to, thir to 30 years old these people are getting killed and are getting manipulated in a way or another wow. they were killed in Port Said one day in in a football match and the thing that made me really cry for the first time since the uh -huh. revolution that I saw on uh, wall just after the football game, this oh is the gosh. way we say jokes. Wow, yeah, yeah, but it's, it's, it's kind of a bitter uh, joke because uh, it's kind of like uh, a kid went to or somebody went to a football match and, and was killed there. But then we have a little bit of an alliteration with the words mm. in, in, uh, in Arabic. Um, I, uh, so who, who, who is killing these fans, these people, these masses? Is it uh, the police? Is it the, the armed forces? Is it the military? It's not the military. It's not the armed forces. We, everybody is throwing um, accusation on other people. The thing is, or the thing that I know is that there is a responsible person for security. He gets paid every month. <laughs> he, he has an office. He has a prestigious job for that. If he doesn't, if he doesn't do his job, uh -huh. he has to go bring someone else. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Now we are talking about Morsi, correct? I'm not talking <laughs> about Morsi specifically. I'm talking uh, the responsible person about security okay. in general. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're getting paid for a job, you're not doing it. Go home, send someone else, or let the job for someone else who's more efficient and more capable to do it. Wow! So not uh, just go. Yeah. Yeah, somewhat if you're any indication of the new generation of Egyptians that have participated in the uprising and who continue to struggle for a better tomorrow for yourself, for your generation, for your family, and for, you know, the, the newer generation coming onto the scene, then I am suddenly feeling optimistic about <laughs> the state of things over there. Uh, and uh, in fact, your enthusiasm seems contagious somewhat. Um, uh, and uh, your participation in the um, in the uh, actual uprising and in the years that followed uh, sort of ended physically when you came to America because you weren't there anymore. So now your participation was more through the internet and maybe telephone and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, 
but do you feel somewhat alienated when you watched uh, the events uh, last week, for example? Do you feel detached because you're not physically in the country? I wish I have I would have been there, but I am here as a cultural ambassador, Indeed. which is for me a very big duty yes. and responsibility that my country put on my shoulders. Mm -hmm. So I am doing that efficiently. I am putting credit to my country in the States. I am getting here paid by courses and <laughs> <laughs> putting so much responsibility on the American government to... Um, make me something to get to get me taught at Stanford, which is a very big and important university in the world. And I am doing my duty as a cultural ambassador, being a role model for the people who want to be in my place next academic years. I'm trying my best. I hope I'm not doing too many mistakes. But uh, I can tell you from knowing you so much and working with you that you are more than succeeding in the task at hand. We are very proud of you here at Stanford and we uh, we feel you are part of our family at this point uh, at least uh, in the Arabic department uh, here at Stanford which is part of the Stanford Language Center of course. Samad Ahmed when we return for our third part of this interview I'd like to speak a little bit more about you and your educational background in Egypt and uh, your uh, you know your interests in terms of academic interests and maybe a little bit about your hopes and dreams for the future at this point Salman Mustafa Ahmad Egyptian Fulbright scholar from uh, Egypt is uh, to Stanford is with me today on the Arabology show coming to you from KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM we'll take a little musical break listen to some more music that fueled uh, the uh, Egyptian revolution and I should tell you that the last track you heard was actually quite a lengthy track by Mustafa Mustafa Saeed, it's called Ya Masri Hanit Webanit, you heard that. It was, uh, well, about 10 minutes long, that track, and uh, then we spoke with Samar again. Uh, at this point, I'm going to take you to a group called the Il Tanbura, and uh, they will be singing a song called uh, Hila Hila. We'll see how that goes, and then maybe expand it a little, expand the music a little bit from Egypt to other parts of the Arabic-speaking world, where we're going to be listening to music that fueled the uh, Arab Spring. Uh, my name is DJ Ramsey. My guest is Samar Mustafa Ahmad, and we'll be back with the third uh, part of my interview with Samar Mustafa Ahmad uh, after this musical break. Oh, oh, oh. 
singer Reem Banna and a song called Stranger in the Gulf. That's a brand new song from her brand new album titled Revelation of Ecstasy and Rebellion. And uh, Reem Banna, of course, who hails f- from uh, Palestine, uh, is actually one of those uh, singers, Palestinian singers, who uh, uh, keeps releasing songs uh, oriented towards peace and a better tomorrow for all people in the region. Uh, before that, 
that uh, we heard, uh, well, from a group called Ittambura, uh, a very Egyptian song called Ahila Hila. And, uh, of course, uh, those two tracks came right after the second part of my interview with Fulbright Scholar to Stanford, Samar Mustafa Ahmad, who is with me in the studio and who has very graciously agreed today to come in and share some of her eyewitness accounts and experiences w- during the actual revolution in Egypt back in 2011. And now we are two years later, and Samar was telling me a little bit about uh, her feelings these days, uh, having watched the, uh, the, well, the second anniversary of the revolution, Samar, uh, via internet this time, not in person. And uh, so, so your feeling was, uh, was you wish to be there, but uh, you still felt uh, what they were feeling? Yeah, I still felt what they're feeling. It's that everything is live and online and you can have all the actions and incidents happening in front of you second by second. So you don't feel eliminated or or detached that much. That much. Um, And the thing I'm doing here, I feel like I'm still participating in a way or another. I am letting the people know about what is happening back there. All the events, all the questions that I'm answering are still a part of what is happening there. Wow. And uh, so, Samar, I want to I wanted shift focus a little bit and talk a little bit about your, um, you know, your background in Egypt. Uh, I, I think you mentioned you, you lived in Cairo when you were there? Yeah. Is that where you were born and raised? I was born and raised in Cairo and got all my education back there. I traveled for a while to UAE, United wow. Arab the United Emirates. Wow. Yeah. For educational purposes? Uh, no, with family. They, wor- they worked there, so I spent a little bit of time there with my family, and I went to school there, too. So. Wow. But you eventually graduated uh, from Cairo? From yeah, Ain Shams University. Ain Shams University, wow. Yeah. And uh, so what did you major in, Salman? English literature. Wow. Oh, now that explains why your English is so good. <laughs> Another reason. And uh, so you chose uh, to, to major in English uh, because it's something you, you loved or... Yeah, I've been I've been into English for a very long time, and it's my favorite subject all on, all in all. But the thing is that literature has a soul, and it means too much to me. Mm. Maybe science is the accumulation of knowledge, but literature is the accumulation of other people's experiences. You see too many characters, too many things. You see the squeezing of the thoughts and ideas of. People who are smarter than me, who are more important than me, who have had so many experiences than mm. me, I get to read all that and mm. like absorb it. And I'm so a good sponge. And, 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 and so you're, you're inspired by English literature yeah. uh, and, and your major, obviously. Uh, what about Egyptian literature or Arabic literature? How much of that uh, do you read? My have you master's read? is in conflict, so comparative literature. So I'm majoring in Arabic, English, and French literature. So... It's a combination of things. Wow. Um, and so since this is the Arabology show, I'm going to focus a little bit on the Arabic literature. <laughs> Who are some of your uh, favorite writers or some of your favorite uh, books? Um, the main important writers, of course, Nagi Mahfouz, Hassan Abdul Qudus, these are uh, figures that are untouchables. But some of the modern literary literarians too, like uh, Ahmed Khalid Tawfiq, he's my favorite. His book Utopia inspired me much. 
and there is Al uh, Aswani, Chicago, and uh, Yakubian building. These two are very important writers nowadays. Wow. Uh, so, can you mention the last two uh, again for me? What were their names? Ahmed Khalid Tawfiq, one of the main writers and one of the main inspirers of the revolution. Wow. Yeah, he is. And so, you said he wrote a book called Utopia? Yeah. Really? In Arabic? In Arabic. In Arab- and the title in Arabic is Utopia? Utopia. I read the main Utopia of Plato, the, right. the Utopia of Plato. I read it uh, once in the university and once afterwards. This is a very important book. But the other one uh, that Ahmed Khalid Tawfiq wrote is slightly different. It, one, it is one of the main books that prophesied the beginning of the revolution in Egypt. It showed the depression and the hard conditions that the Egyptians lived through so it's one of the main uh, revolution books as you can call them right and I mean when when I hear Utopia I also think of the book by you know Thomas Moore you know that described kind of this uh, uh, Utopia yeah. or, uh, but uh, so I, I wonder if they're kind of basing it on that or I've been inspired by no, that no no. no 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 this is a purely Arabic thing do we have a word in Arabic for Utopia Utopia is a place, it's a name, it doesn't yeah. have a word, but it means, in Arabic, it means the perfect place, or Al-Madina Al-Kamla, Al-Madina Al-Fadila. Ah, so something like, and I, I was thinking, you know, Al-Makan Al-Mithali or something. Al-Madina Al-Fadila. Al-Madina Al-Fadila, so would be Utopia. And so, Ahmad Khalid Tawfiq is a, is a relatively new writer? Since the 1900s and 1900s, yeah, he started at the 1900s, and he wrote a very big range series of books that is called Mawara Tabi'a or or Metaphysics, Metaphysical World. It's a series of books that one whole generation was raised on. I read it as a child. I know every single thing about these books. I (laughs) I sometimes. I sometimes quote them when making jokes, actually. <laughs> if you, you quote Ahmad uh, Khalid Tawfiq. Uh, yeah. So uh, I guess what w- the reason I was asking that, uh, because you said he fueled the revolution. I mean, uh, people were reading him as they were demonstrating. Mm-hmm. So I immediately thought this was, uh, you know, and excuse my ignorance, but I thought it was like a relatively new writer mm-hmm. who was writing as the things were happening. But you're speaking about somebody who actually ha- had already written all this stuff and is already already known and whose works were sort of resurrected Mm -hmm. uh, in order to fuel the uh, revolution? Okay, between 100 Egyptians from the age of 2018 to the age of 30, you can never find someone who didn't read these books as a child. So we were brought up on these books, Mawara Tabi'a and Fantasia and these books. Wow, and those were written all by Ahmad Khalid Tawfiq? Yes, they were. Wow, so um, uh, am I uh, right in saying he was born in uh, 1962 mm-hmm. uh, and that he is the first Arab writer to explore uh, uh, like the genre of science fiction and mm-hmm. horror? And he's mainly a, a doctor, a physician. Wow, in addition to being a physician. So he was born in 1962 and, uh, and so it was his, the favorite books you said again for our listeners were... 
to you Fantasia Fantasia Mauro Tabia Safari these books are some sort of a basic to my knowledge in wow. a way or another they contain too much knowledge too much fiction too much enjoyment excitement everything well definitely somebody worth uh, checking out ladies and gentlemen writer uh, Ahmad Khaled Tawfiq mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, but w- what what I'm surprised about is that these books actually you've connected to the spirit of the Egyptian revolution yeah. you find that there it's applicable though the guy wrote them way before uh, the revolution these are not connected to the revolution itself mm. but you will find that all the the people who started the revolution the main source of the revolution were brought up on these books they have the same background they have the same language language has participated much in this revolution actually we connected via language over uh, an imaginary world a virtual world over Facebook and Twitter these were our mean of communication the book of Maura Tabia Safari and Fantasia in these books are the co-founders of rev- of the revolution besides the people mm-hmm. they are the basic of their knowledge they're the background the backbone of their own existence of their own uh, s- mental life right Uh, Even the American students here at Stanford are very excited. I'm starting uh, an Arabic uh, club, a book club, that Uh I will present these things to them. I will present these books, and I am sure they will be so excited to know about them and read. I I, I will agree with you because I know that there is a thirst uh, for for this kind of uh, knowledge. And also, um, you know, your point is very well taken, Samar, about the fact that these people who participated in the uprising from the beginning, uh, who were brought up on these books these books are sort of like uh, you know everybody's heard of them uh, though we may not have heard of them here in the US that does not mean that they were they're, they're not uh, there so uh, Samar uh, let me turn back to your uh, education now so you said that uh, after uh, Ayn Shams University you, you received a, a was it a BA o- uh, over there yeah it was a BA a BA in English literature in English literature and then you went on to uh, specialize in comparative literature yeah and so this is where you are now, kind yeah, of uh, in your sort of. But I didn't take the certificate yet. It's still an ongoing process, so it will take a little bit of time. I don't call myself a master's holder yet, but yeah, you're Godspeed, it will be on the way, inshallah. <laughs> inshallah. And uh, and so uh, when you're talking about comparative literature, you were saying you're uh, looking at the in- at intersections between you know Arabic, French, and English yeah. texts. Is there some kind of or do you have you formed an idea yet about what your you know your your topic would be um, is it thematological is it uh, um, you know what do you intend to do with the three languages and and in terms of comparing or contrasting the female world the inferiority of the female world and how did the females get over that and wow yeah wow including in Arabic literature including in Arabic literature and it's very uh, rich in this area are you looking at sort of a, a, a thematical approach, meaning you go back in time uh, to maybe Jahidiya or, uh, or, 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 or is no, it more of a modern? Modern, uh, modern, the modern one. Modern. Yeah. So modern women writers, let's say, or uh, uh, who, would you, who would you say ins- would inspire this discourse? I think it's not the modern women writers, it's the, the, the women's shape in literature mm. more than anything and the more m- women's shape in english literature and women's shape in french literature it's not a must that i can have a an, an a female writer but mm. a male writer can work just fine absolutely if i have a female point of view 
a, f- a good female point of view in his writings. Mm. A good like he's talking about the female world, not only a female character. Mm. She's not an avatar. She's a person with a past and future, and a present and yeah, opinions, yeah. ideas, and so feelings. You're, so you're looking at representations of women and females in uh, in Arabic literature and kind of juxtaposing it to those in French and English yes. uh, literatures. Uh, that that's of course a, a very very uh, hot topic right now because uh, when we speak about uh, women and especially from the Arab world now we're, we're talking about literary representations but I'm going to take it one step beyond and talk about you know the way uh, Arab women and especially Muslim women mm-hmm. are seen these days um, I mean somebody you are um, a Muslim yourself you were brought up uh, with uh, uh, you know in Egypt with a Muslim family and then when you came to America in this America of ours, um, were you at all worried about people's reactions to you? Or did you come uh, with uh, high expectations? And of course, my next question is going to be, how did you feel after you came here? Before you come to any place, you feel like there is a monster behind the wall? (laughs) Yeah, it's a big wall. I am in a different world, a totally different part of the universe. Mm -hmm. They don't speak the same language. They don't feel the same way. They don't have the same traditions. But the good thing is that I came with the idea that they're totally different. Mm. And when I can hear that they are somehow different, Mm -hmm. after five months here, I can say we're all the same. We're wow. all human beings. Wow. So you felt welcomed. You didn't feel um, sort of uh, prejudiced against or singled out because you're a Muslim woman mm-hmm. living in, uh, you know, in California. Extremists are everywhere in the world. You can never say that they exist, that there are central places, the states or California. Mm-hmm. They exist under my house in Egypt. They exist in everywhere in the universe even in if we go to antarctica where no people are living there you will find an extremist or another but here in california i felt no everybody has his own world mm-hmm. they don't care what you wear they don't care how you pray mm-hmm. they only care how you work and how you deal with them well i'm very glad to hear that this has been your experience in california certainly um but when you talk about you know the way uh, people dress and especially women coming from uh, you know the the middle east or the arab world um how how you know wearing the hijab for example um, you know, that makes you sort of obviously Muslim, uh, visible. Um, if Do you feel that that puts you in a position where you have to be a little more careful than the average person because the media uh, in the States and in, and in the West uh, tends to uh, represent or show women wearing the hijab in sort of like uh, submissive terms, that if a, if, a, if a woman is wearing the hijab, it is because she's being forced to, or that it's an indication of submission and, uh, and uh, maybe a lack of education. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I certainly don't believe in that, but those are the arguments you hear. Uh, do you find yourself sort of having to defy that stereotype? I will talk about myself and about like 90% of my friends, uh-huh. <laughs> the people I know. Yeah. Um, hijab is not only something that you wear over my head, over your head, over the head of someone. It's something that you wear. It's not over your brain. It's just over your head. Mm-hmm. If anybody has the choice to show her 
whatever parts of our body, I totally have a choice to hide that. I totally have the choice to behave the way I want as long as I'm not hiding my brain. Mm. My brain is open for ideas to come in and it's open to ideas to come out. It's shining over other people and absorbing things from other people. So if I'm doing that effectively without the hijab affecting that Mm. and without it cutting the ideas from coming mm-hmm. in and out. Mm-hmm. I, I love your answer, Samar. I really do. Thank you. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're saying this uh, here on the Arabology show because I think just from your answers and just from the way you conduct yourself and you respond to questions, I think that in itself is going to defy some stereotypes or, or prejudices that may exist out there. Um, but uh, Samar, how do you feel about, you know, women wearing the hijab? I mean, do you think that it should be a choice or d- or do you feel that it's something that uh, is a must for um, any Muslim woman? Again, I will talk about myself. I chose that. Mm-hmm. Totally, freely, no pressures. Nobody said that I should do that. I was totally convinced on my own and I did it. I don't know about other people, but I see that when you really believe that you have to do that, mm-hmm. when you really believe that it's a step forward, yeah. A, a step forward, the land that you take, the being stronger than your own desires, being stronger than showing, which is the easiest thing right. to be done. When you feel that, you do it with um, on your own, with your own freedom. You totally have the right of to do whatever you want. This is something that I respect. Yeah. And that I wish everybody does. But I mean, do you, um, well, not necessarily you, but do you feel that society in uh, Muslim countries also gives women the the right, uh, Muslim women, the right not to wear the hijab and Mm -hmm. still be seen uh, for, you know, their brain and uh, and Mm -hmm. as a Muslim? Uh, do you f- do you feel that uh, that that should be the case that women should have the choice to wear the hijab or not wear the hijab? For me, uh, if I have a daughter, I will never make her do that. Wow! I will never make her do that. I will leave her to choose. I will leave her to choose the right time or not to choose at all. It's not something that makes you less mu- of a Muslim. It's something that you choose on your own, and it's land that you gain and. It's a choice that you make mm-hmm. that is a step forward this right. is something important if you do it on your own you take the whole praising from god mm-hmm. if you don't do it on your own so it's it's right. not okay it's not always like everybody chooses that but when you choose that it's something important yeah. to you and it shows strength but Samar, have you heard of situations, because I mean, you know, we've read about this a lot in the Western press, um, situations where um, young women, for example, did not want to wear the hijab and were kind of forced into it by uh, family or peers or whatever and, and kind of felt miserable uh, because they didn't do it out of a conviction or a belief because they were forced into it. I mean, I always think like maybe if they weren't forced into it, they could have chosen it. Uh, but, but I'm talking specifically about those cases. How would you respond to someone who says, oh, no, no daughter of mine is not going to wear the hijab, you know, that kind of uh, tone? Okay, the hijab doesn't exist in Egypt only for religious purposes. Mm. The hijab is part of the culture of people as well. The Christian women back there in Upper Egypt wear hijab. Right. Uh, they wear it in another way than the f- the the hijab that you that we know. But they wear things like that look like a tent. 
Mm. It looks it's a little bit look it looks like a tent and it's black and it's white and it shows nothing but their faces and their hands and sometimes no hands too and sometimes no faces too. So it's not part of a religious uh tradition only, it's a part of a cultural tradition too. So some people see that any extra part that appears from a female body, uh, which is not needed to be seen is a bad thing, is an injury to their own dignity as men. Mm. It's a tradition. I hope it disappears one day or gets imprinted in the women's heads, but nobody gets to be forced. Mm. It's Mm. just nobody gets to be forced. The forcing of thing, the forcing of a policy, the forcing of an economic situation, the forcing of a lifestyle or of a dress code is unwanted is undesired mm-hmm. is is not acceptable for me and for most of my generation yeah. i believe and i'm glad you you were a- you were able to to get that across to our listeners because uh, you know sometimes you think that uh, just because somebody dresses a certain way or is bo- more observant of certain traditions uh and even if they're doing it because they believe in it uh they're immediately judging anybody else who isn't as being somewhat inferior or not as good a muslim if she does not wear the hijab you seem completely uh, at ease with uh, with people make or women making that choice I am a hijab I am living with my roommate she is uh, with my apartment mate she is a Hindu from Hin- from India and she's not wearing a hijab of course mm-hmm. and my other Fulbright scholar uh, co-scholars are uh, a Korean one uh, she has no religion and she's not wearing a hijab, of course. <laughs> and the other one is a Turkish girl and she is not wearing a hijab and she's a Muslim. Wow. We're all friends. We always take pictures together. We're everywhere together. And I don't judge. Who am I to judge people? I'm right. I'm a person with yeah. all my mistakes and all my background history and good things and bad things. I don't judge people. I don't think so. I really love that. And I feel in many ways, somewhat what you're echoing here is actually the general view uh, of the West and, 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 and people who don't wear the hijab, let's say, by Muslim women who do. Uh, it is not, it doesn't seem to me to be this judgmental attitude. It doesn't seem to me to be an anti-Western move, although sometimes the media here tends to see it as, you know, uh, as somewhat uh, an, an, an alienating thing. You, as a hijab-wearing Muslim young scholar and woman, uh, have the right to, to wear it uh, in the U.S. as you would in uh, in Egypt. I'm doing that here. It's not preventing me from doing anything that I enjoy. My lifestyle here is as my lifestyle back there in Egypt. It's the same thing. My life path is going the same way. I don't think it's abandoning me from anything that I like. It's It's an addition to me. It's somehow something that makes me strong in uh, a way. I love that, especially your awareness of the fact that uh, you are, uh, you know, in no unofficial terms, uh, an ambassador from Egypt. And uh, you're representing in many ways the generation of, uh, you know, uh, of the revolution. You're representing uh, an Arab uh, scholar's, uh, you know, desire to pursue their education in the West as well as, uh, you know, back home. And also as a Muslim woman 
who in many ways uh, is uh, not just proud of her heritage, but very willing to speak about the topic, you know, which I think is something that a lot of times people want to speak to a woman wearing a hijab, but they're afraid to approach her. They're afraid if they bring up the question about, you know, why do you wear that or, or, or you know, uh, that the woman is going to be offended by, by that question. You seem very at ease discussing your view and, uh, and expressing it uh, with no problem. The best time I was asked this question was by a four year, three years old kid, uh-huh. Kian, my favorite artist ever. <laughs> Kian uh, he, is here in yeah in the US. here at Stanford. Yeah. He is a kid. He is the son of one of the professors. Kian <laughs> is the loveliest kid ever, <laughs> and he asked me, "Why are you wearing this over your head? You look like a snowman." A uh, snowman. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna at least that's no woman. <laughs> that was you, awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. Because, but what did you say? I said, okay, Kian, what do you wear when you go to someone you really respect? Do you cover your whole body and wear a beautiful suit and do something very nice? I feel the existence of the existence that makes me very respectful and I want always to look the best so this is the best he desires me to always look yeah do you love it Kian yeah it makes you different nice thank you Kian nice and there's this lesson for three-year-old Kian that different doesn't have to be uh, bad you know that uh, to embrace differences someone I really love your gentle uh, yet convincing style the way you process uh, your identity the way you've come to live with your fluid identity as a young uh, Muslim American scholar uh, and woman uh, here at Stanford as well as as, as in the world uh, at large. Uh, so it has been my pleasure to interview you today and to speak with you. I uh, actually forgot we were doing an interview because I learned so much, as I always try to do from my guests, but I learned so much about uh, your experience through you. Uh, shukran gazilan for uh, for being uh, such a gracious hostess and for sharing such uh, candid moments with us here on the Arabology show and before i let you go i should ask you about your favorite music because we spoke about writers and we spoke about politicians and systems but when it comes to music samar mustafa ahmad what do you listen to I am an Egyptian, but Fairuz is my thing. Fairuz is my favorite. <laughs> and You're not yeah. just saying that because you know I, you know, I'm a big fan. I knew that in my own way, and uh, <laughs> you, you, you got that, you got that vibration from me. Yeah. Yes. Yes. She's the best. She's always the best for all moods and. And what about Egyptian music? What, who do you listen Egyptian to? Egyptian music, I mainly, uh, the old uh, versions of Egyptian music, I am a fan of Um Kasum, of course. And uh, modern, yes. I love Anram very much. Wow, beautiful voices. She has yeah. a beautiful voice, Anram. Some of the bands that are uh, performing right now, Skinderella. Oh, wow. This is a very well-known uh, band. band. Skinderella. I'm Skinderella. We are going to try to lo- find their music and play it here on the Aravalji show, Samar Ahmed. Yeah. Skinderella sounds like a mix between Iskandaria and Cinderella. Yeah. Wow. I love the name alone makes me want to hear their music. Yeah, this is very good. And uh, there is also Masar Igberi. These are all revolutionary bands, as wow. you may call them. So, so who was that, the second one you just said? Masar Igberi. And is that a band? or? Yeah, a it's a band. It's a band. Yeah. What, 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 Masar means what? Masar means wrote. 
r- like a road. Road. Route. Like, uh-huh, road. Uh-huh. And Igbari? Was uh, obligatory Obli- road. Obligatory. That oh it's a God. one way, you have to take that, sort of. I love that for a yeah. band's name for me. Just so. so these are bands yeah. that are new, that have come uh, uh, arisen from the revolution? Uh, they have risen before the revolution, and they actually were the fuel for that revolution. Wow. So they gained popularity during that. Yes. You didn't mention Amir Diab or uh, Tamir Husni or, mm. or are these Not two that a little much. they're they're too mainstream, much. they're too well known yeah. maybe. You're looking at well what about Dunya Masoud? Oh, she is a very talented young lady. Really? She's Someone, yeah. Ahmed, you've heard of Dunya Masoud. Sure. She's, she's, she's Dunya cutting Masoud. edge. I have uh, all, the, uh, all the collection. Really? There is another band that is called Basoto. Dunya Masoud actually started as an artist. She had so minor, very short minor roles in some of the movies. And then she started singing because she has a very... No, you can call it. Uh, the first time I heard her, I called her. Uh, she has a heart penetrating voice. Yes, she does. And, and she, have you seen her in concert somewhat? Yeah, I've attended one of the concerts. We Only actually saw Dunya Masoud live. Yeah. Wow, this uh, is ma- this is t- quite amazing because you know her album Mahatat Masr is getting quite a bit awesome. of airplay here at KZSU uh-huh. Stanford ninety point FM. And then when I saw her in concert, I mean th- she's a performer as well as a singer. This the way she uh, you know plays with the song and plays with the audience that makes her very distinct. So uh, I was thinking somebody we will hear something from uh, by Dunya Masoud. What do you think to to end your segment here uh-huh. and uh, and uh, take us from there to uh, more music for that fueled the Arab Spring right here on the Arabology show coming to you from KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm your DJ Ramsey and my guest has been Samar Mustafa Ahmed. Samar before you leave any message to anybody out there? Thank you for having me in your country and for teaching me too much. And I hope I was a good aide for my country and a good ambassador here. Absolutely. And what about for the people back home in Egypt? Tahi Masr. Beautiful. And if you could deduce from that, it was uh, all good. Then long live Egypt, inshallah. Inshallah. It has been a pleasure. Shukran. And I hope you come back to the Arabology show. It has been an honor, a pleasure, and really an educational experience to interview you, Yabinti. Shukran, Laki. And I'm going to say it in Arabi. Inti raf aras al Arab raf aras Masr. Fa'ahla wa sahla fiki daiman huna fi barnamaz Arabology. الله يخليك يا دكتور ربنا يخليك شكرا يا بنتي طيب مع السلامه ودنيا مسعود الان I'm
لما تكون شغل بزمة خايف على مصلحة الأمة شغلك يطلع من غير لازمة علشان ما بيعلاش غير واطي طاطي راسك طاطي طاطي انت في وطن ديمقراطي ولما شقك يصبح مش ليك فقرك سد السكة عليك تتلفت تلقى حواليك إما حرامي أو متعاطي طاطي راسك طاطي طاطي انت في وطن ديمقراطي ولما الجهلة يبقوا أمامك أو فوقك مسكين في زمامك ويسوقك عالهلك أمامك تشرب من السم السقراطي طاطي راسك طاطي طاطي انت في وطن ديمقراطي ولما الكلمة تكون بتدينك لما تخبي في قلبك دينك لما الزل أشوفه في عينك هات إحبطك على إحباطي طاطي راسك طاطي طاطي انت في وطن ديمقراطي ولما حميها يكون حراميها وبلاد ورا ظهره رميها طالع نازل واكل فيها مسنود بالبدلة الزباطي طاطي راسك طاطي طاطي انت في وطن ديمقراطي ولما المجلس يبقى حميها وبلاد ورا ظهره رميها طالع نازل واكل فيها مسنود بالبدلة الزباطي طاطي راسك طاطي طاطي انت في وطن ديمقراطي طاطي راسك طاطي طاطي انت في وطن ديمقراطي طاطي راسك طاطي طاطي انت في وطن ديمقراطي That was uh, Rami Isam, a singer who really embodies the spirit of the Egyptian revolution. A young singer with a guitar who was there in Tahrir. He was actually arrested for a while and uh, he uh, continues to sing. It was a song called uh, Tati Tati and uh, very uh, witty lyrics there if you speak Egyptian or Egyptian uh, uh, dialect. Uh, before that, it was sort of a hilarious song by Mahmoud Al-Husseini called Sigara Bunni and translated Sigara Bunni means means brown cigarette so I wonder what that guy was smoking it was taken from the Beirut Hotel soundtrack Beirut Hotel of course is a Lebanese movie but the soundtrack included songs by many many artists including uh, Mahmoud Al-Husseini so hopefully I had a good laugh with Sigara Bunni and what happened to poor uh, Mahmoud Al-Husseini when he smoked that cigarette uh, before that we heard uh, Dunya Mas'ud a uh, young uh, lady from uh, Egypt uh, amazing uh, singer who actually uh, went all 
over Egypt and tried to uh, re-record and re-revive uh, folkloric songs in Egypt and especially in the Egyptian countryside and came back and recorded them all on uh, several albums. We heard a song called Hain uh, al-Ula from Mahatit Masr. Mahatit Masr means Egypt station, radio station. And of course, that was right after my interview with Egyptian Fulbright scholar to Stanford, Samar Ahmad, who was kind enough to stay with me for the first, well, most of the first of Arabology today of the Arabology show. Samar Ahmad, shukran, thank you, merci for being such an amazing and gracious host today on the Arabology show. She, of course, in addition to being the Fulbright uh, scholar at Stanford uh, from Egypt, uh, has also lived through uh, or had also lived through the uh, Tahrir Square uprising back in 2011. She gave us her thoughts on uh, that experience as well as uh, her current take on the situation two years later. The Egyptian Revolution second year anniversary was last week, January 25th, 2013. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm your DJ Ramsey. This is the Arabology Show, and I'm coming to you from KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. We are uh, streaming live at kzsulive.stanford.edu. <laughs>
Amal Mathluthi, Tunisian singer, activist, and, uh, well, the lady with a voice of gold, singing a song called Kilmiti Hurra from her album Kilmiti Hurra. It means uh, my word is free, meaning that it should be unencumbered. And that's, of course, an amazing album that uh, she recorded right after the Tunisian Revolution. And if you like her voice, check her out, Amal Mathluthi, Kilmiti Hurra. Uh, this is uh, DJ Ramsey. The show is Arabology. And I'm with you every Thursday from 3 p.m. till 5 p.m. If you like the kind of music I'm listening or I'm playing for you, uh, feel free to check out the uh, show's Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash Arabology. And uh, remember that my show here is only one of many, many amazing shows right here on KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. And one of those is coming up right after mine. It's uh, Sun. 
Sunflower Sutra with uh, your DJ Emma every week. Emma chooses songs that fit within uh, different themes every week, meaning uh, themes like colors and flowers and death. <laughs> Mostly a range of rock with some surprises mixed in. So stay tuned for uh, Sunflower Sutra right after my show this Thursday and every Thursday. As, uh, Sunflower Sutra and DJ Emma will be with you from 5 p.m. until 6 p.m. Uh, make sure you check our schedule at kzsu.stanford.edu. Uh, Click on schedule and you'll be able to see some of uh, the amazing shows we have here. A wide array of music, ladies and gentlemen, that you won't get on mainstream radio. Like what you are hearing? Help make sure KZSU can continue providing great programs without commercials to listeners all over the Bay Area. Donate to KZSU. For more information, email our underwriting department at underwriting at kzsu.stanford.edu or call us at 650-723-9010 and don't forget to keep on listening. San Francisco Suicide Prevention wants you to know that you're never alone. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, local volunteers are ready to listen and help you find answers about how to survive your crisis. For help, call 415-781-0500. That's 415-781-0500. The Save the Redwoods League works to preserve the stately coast redwoods and giant sequoias that are a part of California's heritage. Together with the state, private foundations, public service organizations, and individuals, the League has helped preserve more than 165,000 acres of ancient redwood forest. If you'd like to help out or donate, visit www.savetheredwoods.org or you can call 888-836-0005. This is the Airbalgy Show, ladies and gentlemen, and we have about 10 minutes left here in the, for this edition, which uh, I'm calling uh, the second part to the uh, 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 well commemoration of the second anniversary to the Egyptian Revolution. Last week on the show, ladies and gentlemen, I had uh, director, Egyptian director Khaled Sayed, who spoke to us about his experience as a filmmaker during the uh, beginning of the uh, Egyptian Revolution. Today's guest was uh, Egyptian Fulbright scholar Samar Ahmad, who uh, spoke about her experience uh, at Tahrir Square back in January uh, 25th, I guess, of 2000. Uh, 11, and her thoughts on uh, the uh, revolution or the ongoing revolution uh, in, in uh, January 2013, now that she's here at Stanford. My uh, warmest thanks to uh, Samar Mustafa Ahmed, as well as to last week's guest, Khalid Sayed, who I believe is uh, traveling at this point to go document some more historical uh, moments and junctures uh, in Egypt. Wherever you are, Khalid, I uh, send you my my uh, best uh, wishes, and uh, and uh, I would like to uh, also uh, say thank you to everybody who joined me today. Are my listeners, whether you listened live or whether you listened through KZSU Stanford? Oh, sorry, KZSU Live Stanford.edu. Very special guest to Ahmed Q, who, as always, makes sure everything runs uh, smoothly here and uh, is just a pleasure to work with, and. Uh, uh, finally, I'd like to say uh, to remind everybody to stay tuned uh, for uh, Sunflower.
Power Sutra with uh, DJ Emma coming up in uh, well around nine minutes. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it has been my pleasure to uh, to uh, host this two-part special on the Egyptian Revolution here on the Arabology Show. Um, and uh, next week, uh, we will have uh, more of a pan-Arabic show with music uh, that's uh, maybe less revolutionary, but still as uh, interesting and as uh, awesome as you might expect. If you have any comments or uh, you would like to get in touch with me, uh, you can certainly do so at author30 at gmail.com. That's A-U-T-H-O-R-3-0 at gmail.com. Or check out the uh, Arabology page on Facebook. Uh, so it's facebook.com slash Arabology. Most of all, keep listening to KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. We are your station uh, when you're bored with uh, mainstream music or you're just bored with the state of things out there. Listen to KZSU and uh, you will not be disappointed. I'm going to leave you today with a track that can only be called a masterpiece. We heard from the singer before, uh, Reem Banna, but certainly uh, the song will take you into another space. The song is called The Absent One, meaning Al Ghaib, and uh, that song really uh, showcases uh, the, the, the voice of Reem Banna. It sounds like a prayer. It incorporates uh, some kind of lamentation with uh, beautiful Arabic poetry and at some point, if you listen closely ladies and gentlemen, uh, there'll be a mix in of uh, the Muslim call to prayer, all of that in a beautiful masterpiece called uh, The Absent One that's taken from uh, Reem Banna's brand new album called Revelation of Ecstasy and Rebellion Reem Banna, thank you for this treat and ladies and gentlemen, I'll leave you with in her amazing company and voice of from now till 5 p.m., DJ Emma and Sunflower Sutra is next.
تذر من قال أنك ظالم لا تنفعل من قال أنك معتدي حررت حتى السائمات غداة أن أعطيت أبراهم حقل محمدي I'm not afraid. 